0: We direct your attention now to the Word of God, to Matthew chapter 25. This summer we're going through some of the parables of Jesus. And here is one. It's a little bit lengthy, but follow the story carefully. And I know you're familiar with it. And then we'll have a few things to say about it. Beginning in Matthew 25, verse 14. For the coming of the Lord will be like a man going out on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much." "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you've scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours.' But the master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sowed and gather what I had scattered no seed?' then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is apparent as you read the Gospels that Jesus' disciples rather expected Him to inaugurate in its fullness and in its power and in all of its earthly implications the kingdom. They were anticipating Jesus to somehow assume the throne of David and begin His righteous rule over Judah. And this was all that God had promised and It was their expectation. And Jesus had been preaching to them now for almost three years or right about three years that the kingdom of God was at hand. And now we notice here, He is beginning to open their eyes to further revelation. That it is indeed the kingdom of God which has come, but it takes a form that is different than the one they expected. The kingdom of God certainly has come and is coming and will come. But it's going to take a, a path. It's going to have a, a, an opening and a progress that is different. And many of the parables teach various aspects of that. And this one does one right here. This parable teaches, as the one uh, that's in close proximity to it, the five wise and five foolish virgins, that the expectation of the coming of the king will be sudden. It will be unexpected. But this one goes beyond that to teach that there will be a long wait before the full manifestation of the glory of the kingdom of God will come upon earth. A long wait. It must be a wait that is full of watchfulness. Expecting the Lord to come back soon. But working as though His coming may be further away than you possibly can imagine. It would be not only a long wait and a long watch, but it would be a period of working. There were things to do during this long inter-advental period. That is the period between the first advent of Christ in the flesh on earth in these days in which He's teaching His disciples and His second advent, His return at the end of the age in power and in glory. And He begins to talk about things that have to do with that. His return, the judgment that will follow, the resurrection That will be a part of His return as well as the state, the eternal state beyond that time. And most of these talents have some kind of reckoning, some kind of judgmental and discerning conclusion. These are very, very serious parables. They call us to be awakened to some Difficult realities. The Lord told His disciples this Occupy till I come. It's going to be a wait, it's going to be a watch, it's going to be long, and we have work to do. We have occupation to fulfill. And as we look at a few facets of this parable, I want you this morning to think about your work for Christ. Think about your call the call of Christ upon your life, the call to Himself, the call of salvation, the awakening in your soul that caused you to see your sin and to see your Savior and to reject your sin and to devote yourself to your Savior, to your Master. One of the great accomplishments of the Reformation of 500 years ago is it sort of changed the thinking in the minds of so many about vocation. Christian call for a thousand years of medieval Christianity the Roman church had developed a sacrament of vocation and if you weren't a priest or a nun or somehow affiliated with formal church employment a monk somewhere or working in that system as a cleric you weren't in the service of the Lord exactly And with the reformation and the dawning of the light that came is a return to the biblical notion of vocation. The biblical notion of vocation, in summary, is we're all called. We're called to salvation. We're called to holiness of life. And we're called to ministry. Every believer has a call. Has a a work to do. Now, lest your imagination run away with you, let me quickly assure you that those works are the things that God laid down on the creation day. The mandate of creation is that we should occupy the earth to subdue it. So that means our work is in the fields and in the forest and in the mines and in the factories and everything that goes with that all the beginning of economic activity starts with the earth. Everything that mankind needs for His existence upon earth for all time comes from the earth. It is extracted. The fisheries, the animals, husbandry, agriculture, everything we can think of that we need comes out of that earth that God created. God is the original creator of everything. And when He created the earth, He gave us what we needed. That's why I don't get too alarmed about some of these theories about the earth having all kinds of warming and cooling and all sorts of things. I have a confidence that the earth's going to be inhabitable as long as God intends it to be inhabitable. And it doesn't matter how many trees we hug and how many plastic straws we don't use. It's going to be here. We're not to be polluting it. We're not to be raping it. We're not to be abusing God's creation. We have a stewardship over the earth to dress it and to keep it, to guard it, to protect it, to make it productive. But we don't have a responsibility to keep it in existence. God brought it into existence. The Bible teaches us He's going to take it out one day when His purpose is fulfilled and there will be a new heaven and a new earth Void of all the sin and all the thorns and all the thistles of the curse. So we are to occupy the earth. We're to get about our business. And our business are extraction and manufacture and moving and understanding things that God has made. Science and industry. Research. Production. Development. We're to be engaged in those occupations. That's our call. But we are to do it, whether it is taking care of a family, nurturing a family, nurturing a business, nurturing a farm, a ranch, a forest, a vineyard, a factory. Whatever the stewardship is, it is to be done for the glory of God that we're to work in such a way that we not only find life productive and helpful and beneficial, but we are all to be industrious, faithful, diligent, prudent in all the things that we do. In fact, in the parable here, we speak of the Master who gives His servants talents. He bestows talents upon them. The talents are the capacity to work. They are God-given. They're not to keep and to be proud of or to be ashamed of, but these talents are to be used in the occupying of the world till Christ comes. And He's given a specific ministry beyond that, and that is to be a light to the world, to be salt to the earth. To be redemptive to humanity. Work and hold up to meet the needs of those around us. We're supposed to labor in such a way, Paul says, that the thief is not to steal, but he is to labor with his own hands that he may have everything he needs and then have enough to help those in need. That's something of the the broad sketch of what the Lord wants us to do in occupying. And God has given us these talents. He's given us time. He said, work for the night is coming when no one can work. We've given a certain amount of time. I think one of the most dominant thoughts on my heart these days is how I've let seven decades go by. And I've been busy. But I have not been working for the Lord as I should. I cannot see fruit in my life or a place. I feel like I have squandered And a great conviction comes over me. And and I want you to think about your own life. God's given you money, resources. How much of that have you put upon your own consumption? Houses, lands, comforts, furniture, cars, various kinds of financial instruments. And then how much have you given to others in need directly? How much have you contributed to the broader cause of Christ as so many ministries, including this church, and others need the resources to extend to places we cannot go individually, but must go collectively through our, our missionary and our evangelistic efforts, and church planning and all the rest. What, what are the percentages? How much have you consumed upon yourself versus how much have you given to the work of the Lord? And we see some principles involved here in something like that. It's, it's our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our, our skills. Do we tend to depreciate our talent? Do we tend to want to bury our talent? Do we use it? How about the knowledge God has given us? Not only the knowledge He's given us, but the capacity to gain more knowledge. How earnest have we been in learning of God and His creation in our lifetimes? The science, which is just (laughs) the word for knowledge. Knowing, understanding, skills, Arts, talents are entrusted to us for use. I heard a man on the radio once say he had talent on loan from God. Well, I also heard he took a lot of flack for saying that. Well, I think he's right. All of our talent is simply on loan from God. It is a stewardship that we have and our resources and God gives it. But notice a couple of things here about the parable. One is that the master, the scripture says, he entrusted to them his property. Then he gave them the talents. Did you see that distinction? The property is the means of production. He entrusted them with his operations. I don't know what machinery he had. I don't know what, what uh, means of production that he had exactly. I don't know what business he was in. But he gave them the means of production. He gave them the wherewithal to do the work. And then he gave them the working capital. And notice how he did it. He did it according to knowledge. He gave one man five talents according to his ability. He gave another man two talents according to his ability. The Master knows His servants. The Master knows their ability, their capacity, their strengths, their weaknesses. He knows us. And He commits to us those things that we are able to handle by His grace. That work is given to us which He expects us to do and which He knows we can do with His enabling grace and He lays upon us that burden. Not everybody can bear a five-talent burden. And and notice the disparity. There's a lot of difference on a percentage basis between two and five. 250% difference. That's a lot. That's That's a lot. 300%. Whatever the great percentages are, they're just completely different. And everyone has different talents. But He gave each man wisely what he felt he could handle. And that's the way the Lord does us. As the poet Milton said, God does not require day labor when light is denied. And of course, Milton was blind and he didn't have to do those things that a blind man is incapable of doing. But there was things he could do. And in Milton's case, he thought through theology and the purposes of God. He put it in beautiful poetic form. So much work to do. So many different facets. So many different places in the the field. So many places where we can work for the Lord. And he expects us to do that with our energies, with our talent with our knowledge, with our resources, with our time. God has entrusted this to us. But let's look one time at the guy that got, the man that got one talent. I've read a lot of commentaries trying to tell us how much a talent was. And of course, if you read a commentary that's 50 years old with inflation and money and all that sort of thing, it's hard to get a good handle. But this was an immense amount of money. This was was yearly earnings. This was not weekly wages. He gave this man one talent. And the thing that we see about this man when he comes to the time of reckoning at the coming of the master when he returned, we find something out about this man that got one talent. He had an attitude, it was a negative attitude. It was a crushing attitude. It was a pessimistic attitude. He was disloyal. He avoided the hard work, the labor, the hardship, the self-denial, the reproach that might have gone into the task of working for the Master. He decided he would sit this one out. He decided early, he went out and buried it that he was not going to do anything with what God had given him. He was not going to do anything with his talents. And his judgment was not that he was not successful. His judgment is that he was wicked. This is the sinner's heart. This is the heart of rebellion. This is the heart that will not surrender to God. This is the heart that does not know and love the Master. For when you love the Master, you want to be about His business. You want to be occupying till He comes. You want to be working because you have adopted His work as your work and you see that His work is the supreme work and you are delighted to be in the harness and in the yoke of Christ. Following His leading, doing His work. Notice in this particular instance that even though there was a disparity between the amount that the men were given, the first two men were given one much more and one much less, five and two talents each, but yet the same diligence, the same faithfulness, The same industry was required. And if you noticed, their gain was the same. It was 100%. They doubled their money for the master. And their commendation was the same. And it's the words that Every person who works for the Lord longs to hear, well done by good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. Moreover, in stewards, it is required that a man be faithful. That's what it is. It's faithful, loving service to, to Him belong. Love lifted me. It's emotional. It's mental. It's physical. It is a commitment of your whole heart, your whole soul to the Lord. It is obeying the first and great commandment. There was a reckoning when the Master returned and there was reward. Joy. delight been waiting and longing and working for the master a whole lifetime and then you see him face to face and the reward is this enter into my joy that's really what it's all about is entering into the joy of the lord the rejoicing The celebration that comes having been part of His team, having been under His yoke, having worked for Him, having given your life and poured it out like a drink offering like the priest did in the Old Testament. And Paul said that's what his life was like. He just poured it out like a drink offering before the Lord. Pouring our life out for Him. What a beautiful ideal. I know so few reach this, but this is it. To see the face of the Lord. And in His light, we see light. And everything shines and everything is literally glorified. Privilege. Responsibility. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you in charge and responsible of more. Of great things. Then there is sadly, and I end up here quite often when we do these parables because that's where the parable ends up. In that reckoning, there's not just reward for the two faithful servants, but there is punishment. He is called a wicked and slothful servant. And he's cast into outer darkness, his talents taken away. It's given to the one that had the least. No, it's given to the one that had the most. Isn't that interesting? The Lord knows his people, knows what they need, and he knows what he can supply, and he knows what he will reward. But he was cast into outer darkness, no light there. No joy there. Lo, the night has come when no man can work in outer darkness. It'll be a time when it's eternally too late. There's no more time to think about occupying. It is now a place of punishment. An emotional distress. We saw how wretched was the heart of this unfaithful and slothful servant. And now we see where it leads him. It leads him into an absolute insane fit of weeping and wailing, regret, sorrow, grief, great loss, depression. What a failure. What a wasted life. And gnashing of teeth. That's an interesting expression. With this little glimpse of hell of, with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is used another place in Scripture. Remember over in Acts when the people heard Stephen preach and it just burned them up the way he was preaching and what he was saying. And the Scripture says they gnash their teeth at him. Gnashing of teeth is anger. It's not just pain and misery. It's anger. It's bitterness. Even to the end, the bitter end, the slothful servant felt like things were not right. They were not just. He was angry. He was put off. He was put out. He never changed his heart toward the Master. What a sad portrait of our lives if we do not spend them. Now, I'm out of time, but I've got to stop and make one little addendum. the sermon. I I hope there's no one here thinking that all this work we're talking about and this occupying and serving the Lord and all the sacrifice and all that we're talking about is the ideal work of the believer, the vocation, the calling. I hope nobody believes that we're saying you've got to do that in order to be saved. (laughs) You've got to do that in order to be right with God. You have to work like that your whole life and then wait to the great judgment day to see whether or not you lived up to some standard that will qualify you for heaven? Because I can assure you right now, you can't. And you won't. So we're not talking about working for salvation. We're talking about working for a Savior who's already saved us by His grace. And the very best tie-in of all of that was the Scripture that we together heard just a moment ago. Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.